This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. Hi, everybody. So we are back. I am here, of course, with my two besties, which is Ian Kirk and Chris Ward. So, Ian, would you like to introduce yourself again? <laughs> Hi, Debbie. Well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, introduce the star of the show first, and I'll, uh, I'll uh, piggyback off uh, of Chris. So, uh, over to you, Chris. Hi, everyone. It's Chris Ward. I was uh, head of the Murder Unit in a large metropolitan force for about 10 years and uh, I did 31 years in the police as a detective, so investigating the most serious crimes of homicide and serial offenders. Amazing. Yeah, it make, gives me shudders every time I hear him introduce himself like that, you know. <laughs> I, I tell you what, Debbie, his, his deep voice, he should be a, one of these voiceover artists, shouldn't he, for something for sinister. He sounds like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Well, I've got pictures, which I'll share with you. Uh, thank you, Chris. Oh, okay. uh, Debbie, really? <laughs> uh, it's good to be back uh, in the room, everybody. Um, hi, I'm Ian Kirk. Uh, for those who have joined us previously, you know a little about me. But if you are with us for the first time, I'm a postgraduate criminologist, journalist, feature writer, holder of a qualifying law degree and former senior police officer. And I want to get in there. I'm a big Notts County fan as well for the, uh, the, the followers from Nottingham. Um, and more importantly, I guess, a good friend of both Debbie and Chris. And, uh, you know, through our friendship, we discussed various unanswered phenomena. And uh, what better way was it to challenge mainstream investigative inquiry, we concluded, than to bring together the psychic and policing worlds. Um, and keeping these situations active may elicit new information from you. A memory jog by our analysis may lead to a vital breakthrough. And should this trigger an important recollection, I'd urge you to contact Crime Stoppers should it relate to a criminal matter. Otherwise, we invite you to listen carefully to the discussion, apply new learning, especially the operational side of policing that Chris will discuss, and reach your own verdict. Debbie and I will announce ours at the beginning of the next podcast. And just as a reminder, Chris will remain neutral only because the job of the police is and always will be to present the facts and leave adjudication to others. Uh, but in the previous podcast, we investigated the really intriguing case of Zygmunt Adamski. And, and I wonder, Debbie, um, you did give uh, a form of analysis in the last podcast, but having yep. had a few days to think about it, um, what is your... Uh, Mm-hmm. Your final conclusion? Well, my, yeah, my final conclusion. I, I definitely think that there was something UFO related to do with, with his death. I think this was 
I know it sounds crazy and bizarre, but I really do think that this was something to do with aliens wanting to find out more about the workings of the human body. And I just, I really do think that the strange marks on him and the unidentified um, like gel stuff that was found on him. I really think that, that this is, is connected to something to do with all the UFO sightings in the area at that time period and, um, and aliens just wanting to know more about how we function. Mm, that's my conclusion. It's UFO related, 100%. Thanks, what do you think? Uh, uh, Well, I, I, I think the crazy is very persuasive, but perhaps over the last few days, uh, waking up in the morning, I've, I've come to a, a conclusion which is probably a little bit more mainstream, but I, I think it's got the hallmarks of a gangland killing. Uh, and the reason that I've reached that verdict is the location of the body uh, and the way it is positioned um, reflects a significant, vivid and chilling warning to others, in my professional opinion. And I think the continuing silence has been maintained by the spectre of this could happen to you. But then again, that's just my opinion. Well, it still doesn't kind of answer how they managed to get him on the top of that coal pile with no coal on him. <laughs> no, I, I, De- Debbie, I, I recognise there are gaps in my analysis, but that's the side of the fence. That's quite a big one, we, though, Ian. <laughs> we, 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 we tend to agree on a lot of things, but this, there's going to be a bit of divergence. And I'd love to ask Chris, but as we know, he's neutral. Today, I thought we would look at what I'm calling the Wilmslow murders, okay? Um, the Wilmslow murders have been talked about here locally, because obviously, you know, I don't live too far away from where this has all happened. And this has been talked about for years around here. And pretty much everybody thinks the same thing, and that is that big mistakes were made, you know, in investigating these cases because there are so many similarities between these deaths that you just kind of think, hang on a minute, this isn't coincidence. So to, to kind of let you know more about it, uh, there was one couple in particular that lived on Gravel Lane in Wilmslow, and this is back in 1996. And we're talking about Howard and B. Ainsworth. B is short for Beatrice. Just, you know, there we go. That was her name. So Howard and B. Ainsworth, they'd lived at their house on Gravel Lane in Wilmslow for 50 years. And Locally, when they were seen walking together, they would still be holding hands and they were a very loving couple, no history of any kind of domestic abuse, anything like that. But they were found brutally slain in their beds on the 28th of April, 1996. And what had happened the day before was, and this is the last sighting um, of Howard in particular, he was mowing his grass, you know, cutting the, the grass on the lawn. And it's it's a Saturday afternoon, the weather's good, and he's chatting to his neighbour, Margaret Farrow. And she was asking how B was because B had been suffering with a little bit of a tummy bug and the doctor had been out to see her, said she was fine giving her a little bit of treatment, antibiotics, whatever. She was she was actually on the up. And when Margaret Farrow actually spoke to Howard on that Saturday afternoon around two o'clock, um, Howard said that she was feeling much better, 
you know, everything was going in the right direction, uh, but she was still resting in bed. So Margaret Farrow, she thought nothing more about it and off she went. It was actually the next day around 10 or 11 a.m. in the morning when she realized that the curtains were still drawn, that she thought something was wrong and she phoned the police. Um, now, Margaret actually uh, obviously had to give a statement, you know, because she was the, the last person to see Howard alive. And she said that Howard appeared to be this is really quite important, perfectly happy and friendly that day on that Saturday when he was mowing the grass. There was absolutely nothing to suggest that, you know, he was about to do anything heinous to his wife. Absolutely nothing. But when Howard and B were found on the 28th of April, 1996, in their beds, the scene in there was like something out of a horror movie. B Ainsworth was found lying face up, wearing her nightie, on the bed, with a knife embedded in her forehead. Her head had also been hit several times with a hammer and a pillow covered half of her face. Also, these nighties had been pulled up to hip height and she was wearing no underwear. So that is quite, I think, quite a big thing, just that that, that nightie was pulled up to hip height with no underwear on. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second. Howard was laying next to her. He was wearing his pajamas. He was propped up against the headboard and he had a bag over his head. He did have lots of other injuries, like knife marks on him, you know, etc., stab marks, etc. Now, the police declared that case to be murder, suicide, pretty much straight away. A key piece of evidence um, was that there was apparently a suicide note written by Howard himself. And so the coroner kind of said, well, look, you know, not really suspicious. Um, he's decided that, you know, they need to end their lives now. And so that's it. He's, he's killed her. It's a murder-suicide pact, if you like. And so that was it, case closed. But three years later, Donald and Oriel Ward, who were also living in Wilmslow, had been together for donkey's years, happy couple. Again, no history of any kind of domestic violence, lovely marriage, etc. They were found lying in their bed, wearing pajamas and a nighty. And they too had horrific injuries. Oriel had been bludgeoned. She'd been stabbed. She'd been suffocated. Her head was partially covered by a pillow. Now, that's the same as B. Ainsworth. So her head partially covered by a pillow. And her nightie had been pulled up to her hips and she had no underwear on. Now, that's exactly the same as B. Ainsworth. So Donald was found with his throat slit and he had a knife sticking out of his heart. At first, the police were a little bit, you know, worried that this was, in fact, two murders that had taken place. So there, there was a period of a few weeks while they investigated, etc. But ultimately, that was also ruled a murder-suicide. 
There are actually three other cases which, you know, they're exactly the same. Basically, there's no point, you know, me actually detailing all of those as well. You can get the picture. Um, I don't believe that these were murder-suicides at all. I think that Howard Ainsworth wrote the suicide uh, note, but I believe he wrote it under duress. I've actually been to outside of both of these houses that I'm talking about where where these these murders took place. And the first one was Howard and B. Ainsworth's house. And I sat outside there literally for about half an hour, just taking myself back in time, really, to that night. And I went and sat outside the other one as well and did the same there. So I have my thoughts on this. However, I'm now going to pass it over to you, Ian, and say, what do you think? I think you make a very uh, compelling uh, connections with the the two main murders that are separated uh, by three years. And you link it also to uh, three other uh, similar cases. I think, first of all, from a criminologist's point of view, uh, if we look at the logical sort of sequences of, of these types of, uh, of incidents. It's not uncommon for elderly couples to engage in, in murder-suicide. That, 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 that's what's I know that happens, yeah. Um, I it's that. often due to age-related issues and illnesses and, and, and not wanting uh, to be alone. And the second important point is that you're more likely uh, to be killed by someone you know. So, so those are the sort of, uh, from a criminologist's uh, point of view, what I am struggling with is that both of the two scenes that you mentioned earlier on are almost identical. And yeah. if I was going to think that a, a loved one was going to end the life of another loved one, I don't think that would be a choice that uh, most loved ones would choose. It's normally poisoning, for example. Um, mm. But let me just hold that for a moment because the police in both decide it was murder-suicide. Um, Chris, they got it wrong, didn't they? Well, I think, uh, first of all, and thank you to Debbie for that information, I haven't got all the information in front of me, so what I talk about now will be what you've told me. Um, so mm-hmm. I think there's a number of things here. Ian covered off one of the motivational factors for murder-suicide, which is um, the only one he missed was financial. Um, so it's either money, health, um, one or other of the partners not being very well. I think what concerns me about this immediately is that is that level of violence because what you would normally find in a murder-suicide, especially where it's a, a murder-suicide pact, is, is asphyxiation from one party. So usually the person that's been murdered is suffocated or, as you say, poisoned. Um, so the, the least painful, if you like, of, of those things, that level of... Uh, injury and violence is quite unusual. So certainly a, a, mm. a weapon through the head um, and, and the other things you described there is very unpleasant and very unusual. Um, that doesn't mean that it wasn't a murder-suicide, but it's uh, that's, a, that's an extreme level of injury, I would say. So that would, that would be an immediate concern to me, I think. You both, obviously, are, are men, okay? Um, would you consider for a single second that if you are going to commit suicide 
with your other half, okay, that you would kill them and leave them with that that you know private parts exposed this is a 78 year old lady with her nighty pulled up to her hips she was exposed and oh well i say lady actually both of them both of them were left like that so that's two husbands who thought okay you know yeah we're both that's it we're off you know don't want to be suffering with any really awful illnesses that's it so I'll, I'll, you know, see her off first and then put myself off, you know, in the most horrific way with a knife through the heart or whatever. Um, but leaving, leaving your partner there with, you know, with the private parts exposed, that's that I just don't know how anybody could even think for a single solitary second that 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 is not normal. I don't know how they decided that this was even possible from a man who had never well we're talking about Howard first of all but he'd never been known for being anything other than a very kind very gentle man even on that Saturday afternoon mowing his lawn he was lovely with his neighbor Margaret and then and you know you've got Donald again doing the same thing it just seems odd to me I mean would you do that I think it's more than uh, than odd, uh, Debbie. Uh, simply put, no. Um, a loving couple, uh, it's around respect, it's around decency, and it's also about the impact it's going to have on the surviving family members. Yeah. If it was a murder-suicide, then really, on balance, would another partner have killed their other partner in such a gruesome way? Yeah. You know, if it had been poisoning or suffocation, as, as Chris said, there would be a degree of sympathy if one of the partners was in distress. Um, yeah. So, so no, but over to you, Chris. Well, I'd spoil that, but um, of course we have to be careful thinking about people's state of mind when they kill themselves and their partner um, and they're not being rational. The, the other thing is I, I, I hear what you say, Debbie, about people's persona, his persona before all this happened, but in suicide cases, it's very, very common that you uh, speak to people who say, well, there was nothing wrong with them. They were fine. They were happy. Uh, and all of a sudden, they kill themselves. So, you know, outwardly, people may appear absolutely normal um, because mm, they're, ah. they're giving off that persona. But a murderer, on the other hand, because don't forget, really, with with the way that this obviously, you know, it was decided that it was a murder-suicide, Howard Ainsworth has been declared a murderer, hasn't he? Um, even though he'd never murdered anybody else before in his life, he was about to be murdering his wife in such a horrific way, and yet he was there cutting his lawn at two o'clock on the Saturday afternoon. I mean, I wouldn't bother cutting the grass if I was actually going to be you know, ending it all that night and slaughtering my wife as well at the same time. I mean, it just seems odd to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I think, um, uh, you know, and, and some of what you say is very concerning. I think, as I said before, you know, just things can happen very quickly as well. So very few people will know what's happening in somebody else's personal life to, to that level. Uh, we all we all have a personal life which very few other people know about. Um, so you know you don't know what's going on in the background. But 
Um, that level, I have to say, that level of violence is unusual um, in in a murder suicide. Uh, I'm not. I wouldn't be so concerned about the person's persona beforehand. The other thing you talked about was, um, you know, previous domestic abuse. Well, again, um, you know, not all domestic abuse is reported. Not all domestic abuse is obvious, um, and right. especially, especially in elderly people because they feel um, there's a very embarrassed and yeah. yeah. Mm. I wonder, Chris, um, just just following on, because with with murderers particularly, they, they fall into two broad camps. You've got the pre-planned murders, who are very, very clinical and, and, and clearly take time to plan it. Then you've got the spontaneous killers as well, that it can be on a flip of a coin sometimes, whether that aggression turns into that level of violence needed to kill. But, Chris... Have you dealt with in your professional um, uh, life with, with with a murder suicide, and 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 were, were there any similarities uh, with these? Uh, this certainly the first couple of cases. I've dealt with a few, yes, um, and as I say, usually they fall into that broad motivation of uh, health, finances, or one of the parties not being well. Um, they they're the usual reasons for for why that would happen. Um, I think. You know, talking about what what you're suggesting there about you know spontaneous versus sort of a pre-planned murder. In, in the circumstances you've described there, um, spontaneous would be normally a burg- burglary where somebody's broken into the premises. Um, they're looking for something specific, or they've been disturbed, yeah. and then they get uh, they they get angry, and then uh, you have a situation that's developed here, for example. Um, something that's pre-planned, um, you know, there would have to be. You would have to be looking at what would be motivating somebody to to go into somebody's house or be let into somebody's house, of course, because it could be somebody they know and probably probably would be, and then that use that sort of level of violence against them. Um, so, well, I feel that from a perspective of you know the work that I do, as in you know being a medium having sat outside both of their houses. I feel that um, B. Ainsworth in particular and Oriel, Oriel Ward, both of them, the person that did this was killing his mother. And, and he did that time and time again because there are really there are five main cases you know connected to this that were all similar so it's very suggestive of a serial killer being out there which I believe is the case that there is a serial killer out there but every single time in killing the female I believe he's killing his mother every single time um I know when I've sat outside both of those houses I and taking myself back to that time period, I could see quite scruffy looking, thin looking, medium height man walking in. And I know that with Howard and B. Ainsworth, in my opinion, anyway, he was let into the house. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the case that he had to break in. Um, You know, I mean, obviously nobody has ever been charged with anything, so I can't really say anything. But I do believe that I I know who that was. Debbie, I I really want to sort of mine this because um, having spent a a period of time outside two uh, uh, 
scenes of the of, of, of the crime and sort of looking at the the sexual destruction which you know it's a jack the ripper-esque type intervention yeah. with someone's body but i'm really keen to understand when you're outside a scene and you take yourself back in time but what what happens to you how, how are you sure about these visions that you see because i think that's really important that we reflect on your talent in terms of picking up those uh, those nuances mm. those signals how, how does it actually work I just ask to be taken back to that time period. And um, I'm always coming from a perspective of trying to help a situation always with my work. So if I'm asking to see somebody it, when I walk into a building and I'm, I'm saying, you know, can you show me who is here? It's from the perspective of if there are lost souls there, I'll help them to pass over. Um, or if it's been a crime, a crime scene, for instance, you know, do is there anybody still lingering from that crime scene that needs to be passed over? Um, is there anything that they can show me that might help actually solve a case. Um, so I sat outside both of those houses and on both occasions, honestly, a million percent, I am certain that there was one particular man responsible, one man responsible, definitely. But I feel that what happens for him is in that, that first murder of the female there, the urges to to kind of you know redo it again kind of die down and then time passes in this case it was three years and then it's boom boom and he has to do it again it's almost like he's killing his mother again and then some time passes I mean the third case is actually only three months or so after Donald and Oriel Ward so that was a very short time period but again very very similar case and so I think after the second time there was a bit of a you know he had that that taste of blood if you like and and he needed to do it again so you know yeah in my opinion it's a serial killer and he has mummy issues for sure De Debbie at both crime scenes, you, you say uh, the the image of a scruffy-looking uh, guy um, yeah. was at the first scene. Nasty character. Did, did you have – was there a consistency at the second scene as well in terms yeah. of what you could see? Right. It's him again, him again, same man. Yeah, but I actually see the back of him walking in. Uh, I haven't seen his face. I see the back of him walking in. But I know who he is. I know who he is, but I see him walking in. Um, and this person as well will have had terrible problems in forming long-lasting relationships in his life. That, that's who he is. He's pretty much a loner um, and a little kind of hermit, if you like, keeps himself to himself. But he has issues about women in general, and it all stems from his mum, who I don't think was a bad person. I just think that he has some serious, you know, issues himself as a person. Thanks, Debbie. I'd, I'd like a lot to sort of uh, reflect on there, Chris. What's your uh, immediate thoughts on that? Well, I just want to finish off on, on the murder-suicide bit because, of course, I've talked about murder-suicide 
in relation to people that are consenting, if you like. So mm. have formed a suicide pact, as it's frequently called. Of course, this tends to suggest that if you did go down the, the line of murder-suicide, that it probably wasn't consensual. So therefore, because of that level of violence. So that would strike me if that if that was a murder-suicide with that level of violence, that that's, that's anger and rage, that those level and nature of those injuries, I would say. Um, so that would tend to be somebody who's discovered their partners in a relationship with somebody else or has used all their money or as opposed to a, like a consensual murder-suicide pact, if you, if, you, if, you, if you know what I mean. Mm. Can I just ask you one thing, Chris, before we you know, bring this one to a close? How many people commit suicide by stabbing themselves through the heart, even leaving the knife in place? It does happen. Um, I don't know what the numbers are, but but it, it does happen. Um, I've dealt with a couple where people have have, have done that. It, it seems almost impossible oh. from a ra- rational point of view to even imagine it, but it has happened. Mm. Or, or slit their own throats as well. That's happened before. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Gosh. The families. I just feel sorry for the families. It's horrendous, isn't it? Yeah. I guess from a criminologist's point of view, um, if I can reflect on... Uh, on Paul Britton, who's one of our leading criminologists, um, he asserts, and I think there's there's an awful lot of uh, uh, mileage in what he asserts, is that this type of violence um, is not usual. <laughs> and it, it comes back to your earlier point, uh, Debbie, that you said this was unusual. But what he does uh, go on to state is that this type of violence, the history with that person will have... Um, animal cruelty, um, oh, yeah. lesser mm. sort of sexual offences yeah. such as flashing. And uh, in many of the um, cases, the sexual murders that the police have dealt with uh, across the country, um, very Do often... Do you ever the, women flashers? I've never heard of a woman flasher, um, you know. It, I have, but it's very, very rare uh, in, in terms of that sexual. But what Paul Britton says is that the irony is the police very often have got that intelligence on their systems and other partner agencies that have, you know, the fact that this person was, you know, showing all the hallmarks of doing what you're doing. The thing that is uh, not complimentary is there was no evidence that, that I can see that uh, either of the men, particularly in the first cases, had any sort of behavioural issues such as that. So that, again, yeah. no. tends to sort of... Yeah, I don't, I don't think Howard Ainsworth was, you know, doing things like flashing and all no, <laughs> so everybody would have known about it. No, very respectable families. Exactly. Very, very, very respectable families, all of them, all of them. There's mm. just, just one final question I've got for you, Chris, um, because after the first two offences, uh, there, there was a gap of three years. And I think, Debbie, you said the next uh, related Scene was about mm-hmm. three months later. From your professional yeah. opinion, uh, Chris, uh, of the killers you've dealt with, uh, do they grow in confidence? Um, it, it may be a very straightforward question, but um, it seems to me that if it is a serial killer, there's a three-year gap and then there's a shorter gap. So do they grow in confidence when they're not caught? Yeah, I think most criminals grow in confidence when they're not caught, um, particularly serial offenders so serial sexual offenders particularly. Um, but of course, you know, gaps in offending uh, can be a number of things really, um, from being in prison, of course, to um, being distracted by other events in their life 
Um, so, you know, you can have these quite significant gaps between offending. It's not unusual. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Debbie. Um, again, our investigations delve deep into a mysterious death and in bringing things to a conclusion, I'd invite you to reflect upon the submissions and reach your own judgment. Uh, evaluate your own opinion with a counter-narrative and it passes this assessment, I'd encourage you to share your viewpoint with Debbie via social media. Debbie and I will declare our verdict at the start of our next podcast. Uh, but finally, Debbie, over to you to bring things to a conclusion. Well, thank you, Ian, and thank you, Chris, too. It's been a really interesting discussion today about these deaths, and I really can't wait to hear what everybody else out there thinks. We have set up an email, and that's hello at unexplaineddeaths.com. Feel free to email in and uh, let me know your thoughts, or do you know anything more about the cases? Please just let us know. And I'm looking forward to recording our next episode soon, too. So... Take care, everybody, and we will see you soon. Bye.